0: Welcome to The Awakening Podcast. First, I'd like to wish you all a Happy New Year and hopefully we we'll get our freedoms back this year. Um, the episode that I'm putting up today is actually from my speaking podcast, but uh, I thought it was relevant. Um, it's with Tanya Target camacho and she's a former investigative news journalist. So we talk about like the fake news uh, and why you know, it's no longer free press. And um, I mean, she's pushed pedo priests in jail, and we discussed a lot about that. She also interviewed uh, Muhammad Ali and had a, a very interesting the story behind that. Near the end, we discuss our workshops and how she has a very high conversion rate so that might be of interest to uh, you know business owners if we we're actually planning on doing uh, workshops. But it's an interesting conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. This podcast is sponsored by Koolaboola, creators of websites, animation, and digital art. To get a 10% discount, go to koolaboola.com and put in the discount code SPEAKING. Welcome to the Speaking Podcast. You can find all our episodes on speakingpodcast.com or on Bitchute and YouTube as Speaking Podcast. I also have the Awakening Podcast, the Learn Polish Podcast, the Meditation Podcast, and the Crypto Podcast, and all can be found on roicallon.com. Today, my guest, I would say, I don't know, English, Australian, but now in America, please welcome Tanya Target Camacho. Did I do it justice?
1: You got it. You got it spot on. You did awesome. Uh, Thank you for having me. Excited to be here.
0: You might let the audience know who's Tanya. <laughs> uh,
1: well, it's a it's a great point. Yeah, I was born in England, moved to Australia, and now I'm uh, I'm in the US. So I'm actually uh, a former investigative news journalist. Uh, I'm an award-winning news journalist turned video speaking and media strategist.
0: Ooh, very interesting. It Sounds super impressive, doesn't it? It's a it's a
1: great it's that it's that great elevator pitch. <laughs> Well, there was an
0: elevator. It was like the first, first, <laughs> first level in, in, in you, your pictures done. Yeah. Excellent. But it
1: basically just means that I'm a professional story hunter. I'm an award-winning journalist. I used to find really bad guys and, and and send them to jail. I sent a few bad guys to jail. And my passion is finding stories and finding truth. And so now what I do is I help entrepreneurs, speakers, authors, coaches, find the best parts of their story and their truth to make massive um, income, impact, and
0: influence. Very good. So before we delve into that, because that's very interesting, I'd like to know, you know, you moved from the UK to Australia, like, were you shy? Were you outgoing? How did it work? Oh, my
1: goodness. Yeah, I was, I was, um, I was, I was very outgoing until I got to Australia. So I actually went from England to the Middle East, which I, I didn't share with you before, but I did, I went from England to the Middle East. And in the Middle East, I thrived, you know, I was the education system is very different and so I was with older students and I was a very gifted I was a very gifted child I say gifted child because when I became a teenager all that went out the window but I was academically very very bright and when I moved to Australia they didn't know where to put me so they put me in a grade that was basically I should have been in first grade and I was in third grade so I was two years younger than all the kids and I had snow white hair dressed in flares that were way too short for me very tomboy with this posh British accent and so I went on the first day of school expecting it to be awesome because I was so good at school and it just became awful actually I didn't fit in and it stayed that way for a really long time and so I would you know don't feel sorry for me but I would go and eat lunch on my own a lot and and then kids would run up to me and ask me to say uh, pronounce words and then run off laughing so it was um it was it was it was a great environment to to get strong quickly and flex your mu- your muscle about who you are
0: it's strange actually because everybody's had a, a bad experience in school and you know the system is so bad that it doesn't help people with that I mean there's no way you should have went through that
1: oh no absolutely and and to be honest it, it actually perpetuated so I ended up getting a scholarship in high school I got a music scholarship and my parents ended up moving away and I didn't want to be away from them so I moved to this little country town where they were and the kids and the well the teachers were all talking about this gifted student that was coming from another school and so by the time I got there the girls hated me and I was I was physically assaulted for the first time ever in my life in high school and no one, did, no one did anything about it, you know, the principles, no So when I had my daughter, I was like, there is, I was just vigilant, right? I was on the lookout for any signs of that and, and I wasn't going to tolerate it. But I don't know what it's like where you are or where your audience are, but I know in Australia, um, it was just really bad. Like the bullying is legitimate and you could say, it is it is great for those who can withstand it, but sadly, not everyone can withstand it. And then the bullies go into the workplace, which is why people become entrepreneurs because they don't want to work with those kinds of people, and they want to, you know, be around their tribe.
0: No, in Ireland, I mean, I was bullied, and I saw a load of it. And I make like I was shocked. My my daughter's twenty one; she's in Ireland, and she's ne- she's never witnessed anything like that. My my youngest child is seven here in Poland. And I just make sure because I saw on a playground that there were kids bullying him. And I was like, so then I started just toughening him up and teaching him, but just to make sure don't ever hit anybody or don't, you know, but if somebody's that bullying you, don't tolerate it. Because as soon as you, you know, defend yourself, I mean, at the end of the day, like if, if it's in a principal's office, you should tell them, but most of the time, unfortunately, they don't care. like your own problem
1: no well i kind of actually had the the opposite approach to you i I would say (laughs) to my daughter if you're picked on you know um uh, slog him like you know, like if if someone touches you or someone's abusive to you, you need to stand up for yourself. You need to channel. You need to ask yourself, what would Mummy do? And she goes, but Mummy, I'll end up in the principal's office. And I said, excellent. Then they'll call me, and then I'm going to tell them what's going on, and then I'm going to come up there. So I had the opposite.
0: <laughs> no, it's a, no, it's not the opposite because it's basically if somebody hits him, he's to hit him back. Like I mean, it's oh, yeah, not yeah. that. Oh no, he's not to take it and. Because, I mean, it it happens. You see it all the time. And unfortunately, the teachers, they go, oh, don't do that again. And that doesn't work. A good jab in the jaw is they won't do it again.
1: And I think, you know, I think it's really good for kids, uh, not that we want our kids or friends or anyone to go through bullying, but there is, I think also there's this interesting line, like there are kids being kids, and that does help develop mental toughness and resilience and all that kind of thing. And I think the teachers are the ones that go, oh, it's just kids being kids. No, well, there are kids being kids. And as parents, it is important that our children, you know, do learn to stick up for themselves and get a little bit tough because, you know, life is, you know, I'm a Rocky fan. So, you know, it's, you are going to get hit hard. You are going to fall down. You are going to need to keep getting up and keep going, right? Life isn't full of rainbows and lollipops, but there's that. And then there's bullying, right and so that a little bit of it is normal and it's i think it's good character development but then it can cross the line and i think teachers in particular just go because it's easy oh it's just kids being kids no it's not there's a line where kids being kids becomes bullies
0: yeah i was a rocky fan as well my first dog was called rocky because he had a black eye kind of and the rest (laughs) was white so yeah and you see people don't realize as well there's a lot of bullying in the workplace. And, it's not just on the school ground. There is a load of people that are actually bullying employees. Oh, yeah. And what what, what I don't like, even though I like his style as a chef and everything, but, you know, like the reality show, like Gordon Ramsay, Ramsay. he's verbally (laughs) abusing people. So they're glorifying it as being good. And if other people are looking at that, they think it's normal. It is not normal. It shouldn't be tolerated at all. I don't know how that is accepted to be put out there. You know, he's calling people idiot sandwiches and stuff like that, putting bread up to their head. But, like, that, you don't know how that person reacts the next day.
1: Oh, absolutely. But I do have to say it does make for compelling TV. <laughs> Am I allowed to go up to that? But I totally agree with you. Like, he really is a bully. And I don't know what happens when they go home. Like, he is just brutal. But from a voyeuristic point of view, you know, I can see why it gets the ratings. I mean, he is rather hilarious. But, I, yeah, it's not cool.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. well, I mean, you'll see him off camera and he, he seems to be a very nice guy and he seems to be a great father as well. Like, it's just a show thing. But unfortunately, the public don't they can't kind of decipher the difference. And yeah, they think it's OK to bully someone in the workplace. And it's not.
1: You know, so. No, no. So, so we I, bullies become workplace bullies. Yeah.
0: yeah. So I'd like to t- go into the journalism first, because, you know, yes. so, some of the speakers, they you know you don't know what route they're going to go, but I'd like to, what did you learn from that? How did you, you know, sharpen your skills on that?
1: it's oh, a really great question. I mean, when I got into journalism, I was the first one that the newspaper took straight out of high school. So i in 12 years. So it was either 10 or 12 years, so a very long time. They always always took people from uh, university to have a degree, but I did it old school. I mean, I still had to go to university, but actually... I was in 12th grade in December. And in January, I was working in a daily metropolitan newspaper with no idea what I was doing. So I had to sink or swim really, really quickly. And it was brilliant. It was brilliant training um, because you were thrown into a lot of very difficult situations, uh, which makes you a really great interviewer, makes you a really great listener, gives you the ability to get across huge amounts of information in very short periods of time And also become an expert in a topic that you have never been exposed to before. So, for instance, a prime minister or president might be visiting from another country and you might not have been following the politics in that country. And you've got literally the cab ride from the office to the interview to get abreast of everything that you can get abreast of to do a really powerful, compelling interview. So that was really good in terms of preparing you to be a a speaker, um, a coach, you know, all the different people that you meet what it also taught me i've never met a person who doesn't have an incredible story that needs to be shared Um, literally in 26 years i think it is as a journalist everybody has at least one fascinating story if not more and it's just asking the right questions and digging deeper and deeper and deeper to find that story and then i did some really cool things too you know like i i met because we talked about boxing oh my goodness I met Muhammad Ali. I got the world exclusive interview with Muhammad Ali and it is the first time in my career where (laughs) I thought I was going to be physically sick. I was so nervous (laughs) because I grew up just idolizing Muhammad Ali. You know I grew up on Rocky and and Rambo and Bruce Lee and you know all those classics (laughs) and now I was getting the chance to meet a living legend. So it gave you backstage passes to rock stars and presidents and and living legends like, you know, like Muhammad Ali. And it also allowed you to, you know, I, I, as an investigative news journalist, I was able to help victims get justice. So I was able to do legwork to find evidence for the sexual assault cases and pedophilia. And I've put priests in jail and took cameras in undercover Uh, which 60 Minutes used for their lead story two weeks in a row in Australia. And yeah, so it was a great opportunity to, to actually make a difference and see people who didn't get justice get justice as well as all the other cool stuff.
0: And I, I was doing a live call that with there's five of us uh, doing podcasting as a group, like Freedom Broadcasters. And we had John Barber. I don't know. You're familiar with him. He's 88 at the moment. But I asked him the question about him interviewing Muhammad Ali because it was during the time of the Vietnam War, you know, because he was anti and he, oh, gave yes. a, he gave a fantastic story. So, I mean, to have access to these people is, is fascinating man.
1: Oh my goodness. Uh, you know, we, we heard the photographer and I got a tip. I was living in Australia at the time and, and, and the, the photographer and I got a tip from another journalist with another contact on the island that he was being flown into Hayman Island, which is a very exclusive island of, in the Great Barrier Reef in Australia in the Sundays. And they have a very strict paparazzi ban. So no journalists, no photographers are allowed and so we had to go undercover so we're going undercover as a married couple with the oddest looking married couple and this was years ago so this is going to show how old i am um digital was just coming out so we were using film we're using camera with film and we even though there was a photo lab on the island we didn't trust the photo lab because they might they might confiscate the images. So our suitcases was all photographic developing equipment. So we were there for four days with like a handful of a strange clothes because our two suitcases were just jam-packed with darkroom equipment. And the photographer was a bit of a joker. And so, you know, we we get on the island and immediately you start staking it out. You know, you gotta check out where the exits are, where the penthouses are, where security might try to usher him away if we get caught. So where are the elevators? Where's likely he's going to stay? And then you've got to check out each of the restaurants and nightclubs and, you know, because he is on holiday, so he could be anywhere. So I think we finished at about three o'clock in the morning, two, three or three o'clock in the morning. And the photographer, as I mentioned, was a bit of a joker. So he would say to me all the time, oh, my God, Tanya, there he is. And to be honest, I didn't want him to be on the island because, I I don't know, there was just this kind of, what do I call him? Like, is it Mr. Ali? Like, I just had this this block about what do I call this man? Because it was just such an honor to be able to meet him. And literally, I've just met so many celebrities and world leaders and I couldn't care. But this man, I was so nervous. And so every time he would say that, my stomach would flip. And I would look, and he wouldn't be there. And this went on all night, right? So it's it's a boy who cried wolf. So we finish about three o'clock in the morning. We go back to the hotel room. We're trying to get some sleep for the so that we can be up for the first ferry off the island, which is five o'clock. Because if he was leaving or he was going fishing, you know, we we had we were working. So we had not even two hours sleep because the photographer was a terrible snorer. So we're up at five. We are now like a married couple. We are fighting, right? It's like we've been married for 35 years. We are. I'm not even talking to him. I do not think he's funny at all. And he says to me, we're walking back, Mr. Ali Muhammad, he wasn't on the ferry, so we're walking back to get some breakfast. And he goes, oh, my God, there he is. And I'm like, oh, whatever. And I turned and I looked and my stomach just flipped. And I saw this huge man with this afro, short afro hair, and he was he was drinking something like tea or coffee. And as he was drinking it, his arm was shaking, right? Because uh, he had Parkinson's, his arm was shaking. And I was like, oh! And all these thoughts went through my head. Oh my God, you're gonna have to go and in, in, you're gonna have to go up to him now. <laughs> have to go up to him now. <laughs> down The other side way, it's like I don't want him <laughs> anyway. We sat down at the tables. And we had to wait for the waitress to go because paparazzi are banned. So she would go and Cameron would go to me, go, 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 she's gone, she's gone. So I'd get up to go to go over him. And then everything would just be like, I've got to go to the bathroom. (laughs) This happened like three or four times with me running to the bathroom. I'm like, Tanya, get a grip, get a grip, get a grip. So anyway, get a grip. Next time she goes away, I go up to him. And as a journalist, there's certain things you ethically have to do. So you have to identify yourself. You have to, you know, pull out your press pass or your, your business card. And so I put out my business card and I introduced myself and I said, I called him Mr. Ali, by the way. And I said, oh, Mr. Ali, I'm just, you know, I'm telling your target. I was telling your target at the time. From the career newspaper, I'm um, just wondering how are you enjoying your stay here in Australia? I mean, it's just such a ridiculous, you know, but he's on holiday. And he said something to me and I couldn't understand it. So I said this like three times and then I heard this and he goes, pull up a chair. Right. And I'm like, I'm sorry, Mr. Ali. And I'm <laughs> feeling really bad leaningly. And he just kicked this chair. This <laughs> chair went flying and my butt went down like that. Like it was a <laughs> like, like the principal. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> And so I was talking to him and he was giving me answers, but I I was at the point where my mind was not going to be able to quote him. I couldn't remember anymore. So I had to pull out my notepad, pull out my notepad, quickly write down what he said, ask him a couple more questions. And then whooshka, all these people, like probably about 30, 35 people just huddled around him, split us up, escorting him back, yelling and all this at us. The photographer's trying to get shots. So uh, we were escorted back to our room. And then the, I think it was the general manager of Hayman Island called, which is a big deal. And he's like, how did you get on the island? What are you doing here? And I don't know where these nads came from. I was in my early 20s and I said to the general manager, look, we're here on holiday. We're fully paid up as guests. We just arrived yesterday. We have two more days. We can do this the easy way or the hard way. Easy way give us five, 10 minutes to get a photo, a couple of grabs, we'll leave the island on the next ferry. All the hard way, give us nothing and we'll ruin his entire holiday. <laughs> it just sounds awful. So he's like, I'll call you back and call you back in 10 minutes. He goes, be at the jetty at time. You're going to get your photo. Um, you'll have to ask him questions as he's walking to the boat and then get off this island. So that's what we did. We got the photos. <laughs> The photos were terrible. The photographer was so nervous. They were slightly blurry. I mean, like ridiculous. I got a couple of, you know, holiday quotes. And uh, and then we start shopping the story around, right? So we're ringing all the different bureaus, news bureaus. And it was hilarious because the journalists, the thing about being a journalist is you want to have the story first, right? You want to be the one that breaks the story. And so we had caller ID wasn't a thing back then. And so the bureau chiefs were like, oh, okay, so um, so what's your number? We'll give you a call back. And I'm like, nice try. Ha-ha, I'll call you back in 10. <laughs> Make a decision. Because if they had our number, while well, caller ID didn't happen, they could have the error code, they could do a search on that, and they'd know we're on home Island. and then our competitors would fly in, yeah. So it was, pretty, it was pretty cool. I would definitely say, like, literally my specialty was pedophiles and terrorists, so I did a lot of undercover stuff exposing terrorist training camps and and i love the fact that I've helped send pedophile priests to jail but my favorite thing of all time was meeting Muhammad Ali or Mr Ali and when we got off the boat that night I oh, was so when we got off the island that night my dad's a huge Muhammad Ali fan too and um I called him um it was about I think it was like 11:30 cuz the paper goes to bed we call it going to bed at eleven twenty, which means that any news that comes out after that is pretty much missed, right? So, if you've got a really great story, it's technically safe to tell other people about it after the newspaper's gone to bed, unless, of course, they can tell TV or radio. But I was pretty confident I could, you know, share that with my dad. So it was like, you know, eleven thirty at night, and I called him and I said, "Hey, Dad," I said, "Guess who I just interviewed?" And he's like, "Who? Who?" And I went, "Cassius Clay," and he was like, "No way." <laughs> like yes I just met Muhammad Ali and sat at the table he got angry with me and kicked a chair out of time to sit the heck down yeah so
0: there you go i brilliant brilliant and like because you know you mentioned about the the priests and everything because I think that's fantastic but like unfortunately because we want to see more of that because I saw it in Ireland as well I mean they we're just moving them okay. from one parish to the other but no, it seems to be because it seems to be infiltrated at very high levels around the world, you know, royalty and everything. Like it, unfortunately the media has. I mean, you've I, I must have made a shift or something because now they're covering them up and they're letting them off. I mean, that must be kind of frustrating for you when you've seen the power of putting them away, because that gives fate in humanity to kind of what's happening now.
1: Well, that's actually the reason why I'm not doing journalism anymore. So Uh, As an investigative news journalist, you—it is literally the highest level you can reach in journalism. I've worked as a political reporter. I've run my own news bureau, and I became the penultimate in journalism, which is a recognised investigative news journalist. There's very few of them around the world that are actually recognised as investigative journalists. And here's the thing: the higher up you get. And the bigger the stories you find, the more you bump into it's not a free press. And I found the most disgusting stories about politicians, actually, in particular, that I just couldn't get printed. And I, I, I called it my protected, the, the protected species list. Um, and if you were on that list, it doesn't matter what you did. No story was ever going to be published about you. And that didn't sit well with me. I was there to to freedom of the press, to, to share these stories, to uncover these injustices, to expose corruption, and I was being censored. And so I was like, well, I'm out of here. This is not, you know, and I'm watching. I'm watching and I'm waiting. Maybe one day I'll go back when real journalism can actually happen. But at the moment, I totally agree with you. I mean, I'm here in America. Oh, my goodness everyone talks about the American press and I didn't really, I mean, I watched it, but now I'm over here and I'm, I'm living it. (laughs) It's not journalism. It's opinion. It's not, you know, unprejudiced reporting, investigative reporting. It's a, it's a magazine article everywhere. Uh, And I think what I've been waiting for is a correction, right? So you have like Watergate and I'm waiting and and so we had this expose and we've got this fake news and there is a lot of fake news around. But the problem is the impact is that there is a lot of true news around, but it gets labeled fake news. And there's been so much conditioning that the news is fake that even the truth is now not recognized. And so I'm I'm waiting. I actually thought it was going to happen last year. I thought we were at that kind of that balancing point in America where there was going to be big exposés and we were going to get real journalism back, but it didn't happen. So I don't know if it'll ever happen, but if, 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 and when it does, that's probably when I'll go back to it. But until then, mm, I don't like finding stories about people that really need to be told in the public interest and aren't going to get told ever.
0: So, there I, we go. I,
1: I'll, I'll hop off my soapbox. And <laughs> oh,
0: I, I, I like, it. The the beauty is maybe two, three years ago, ninety-nine percent of people weren't aware of it. But there's a lot more after waking up to the what they're doing. Because even say in the UK, there was 1.7 million people protesting recently. Zero from the BBC. In Ireland, loads, of zero from RT. It's all over the you know, they're they're just hushing it down. But when that happens, then you know, people kind of they go against them they realize oh and then they they spot a lot more
1: well there's other th- there's other problems too like years ago you could get on the front page of google by appearing in the media in you know big media outlets and and it was organic i don't know what made them think it was okay for news outlets to be able to pay to be on the front page of google so now you are the stories google used to just you know it would throw this and this at you based on Uh, public interest and newsworthy content for news outlets I'm talking about, not other stuff. Now different news outlets can pay to get that premier spot on the front page of Google. So you're now, you're not, and with all the algorithms, you're not seeing the full story. You're seeing what the algorithms tell you to see. And you're seeing in terms of news, because I still digest a lot of news, you're seeing what's paid for you to see that. I don't know how you're going to fix that, but that's a major flaw and major fault in the system if we're going to have access to true and accurate reporting then that's got to change as well so that we're seeing the news rather than what news outlets are paying that they want us to see
0: Not sure if you've seen uh, project veritas i think it's called they're they're exposing a lot of the corruption going on at the moment and you know they're taking the likes of uh, twitter to court for you know, all the lies that they're doing. So, And there's, I think the Lightworkers is, in, is a paper as well that's getting articles. So they're, it's slow, but I think it, it's going to be hurting the other guys in the pocket because at the end of the day, they need people to be paying for the subscriptions or buying the newspapers or something. And when people wake up, they stop supporting it and they support the good boys. And hopefully we'll see the shift that you'd like to, you know, get your back. Get another, you know. <laughs> get another. Let me, Adam.
1: Let me off the leash.
0: <laughs> and what, what's strange? Because you, you were talking about getting right, really nervous for uh, Muhammad Ali, but you didn't get nervous uh, like for politicians and everything. And for me, no. I, I, like, I, I mean, I've, 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 I've had lots of different people on the show and on the live calls, especially, you know click clark sherry tenpenny but for some reason with david ike because i've read a few of his i just got extremely nervous as i'm talking and it's happened because i've had him on my own show and then the live show and it's never happened to anybody else when i'm doing it and <laughs> it's it's strange isn't it that you
1: yeah yeah it is it is yeah but i totally get it 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 it, it doesn't make sense but it makes sense
0: yeah 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 so, I, I mean, we kind of went off in a little tangent to where I thought we'd go, but it's extremely interesting anyway. But uh, so, like, you've done a lot of workshops because I know that uh, you've, yeah, so you might tell us about the kind of workshops you've done and how you structure them.
1: Yeah, sure. So, I I, I actually run sold out workshops in Australia and in America. And so, the workshops have been around media and publicity, so how to create $100,000 in free media and publicity. Um, So just using my skills, obviously, as a journalist to help them find the best pieces of their story, the best angles, um, the best elements of their expertise, so they can go and get featured on TV and in various publications, so they can put those as seen logos on their website. And then I've also run video workshops, so how to get more clients with video, uh, and also um, speaking as well, you know, how to create a really successful speakers funnel. And when I was running live, like, because they're online at the moment, when I run them live, typically I would speak somewhere, you know, maybe for 12 minutes, 20 minutes, 45 minutes, whatever the time is, right? You just kind of fill it or you condense it. And from there, I would sell into a low um, half-day workshop uh, at a price point of about 47 bucks. And the reason I would do that is because it's a no-brainer. You know, when you go to attend an event, you don't go there thinking, I'm going to spend money on what the speaker's offering. You go there thinking, I'm not going to spend anything. I don't care what the speaker's offering, right? But when the speaker you know you like the speaker and you and you're like oh you know like she's all right she hasn't got two heads or anything i'm i'm interested in that media stuff i'll see what she's offering if it's like no i'm not going to do it and this and you come out and you go it's 47 bucks to come spend a day with me they're like i'm in right it's a no-brainer so i have a a, what i call a no-brainer low low level no-brainer offer where they come and spend more time with me so it'll be 47 dollars into this workshop and in this uh Half day was really one day, but I call it half day. Half day workshop, they would get, you know, all these other skills. Um, but if they actually want to learn how to write press releases and how to pitch properly and all that good stuff, they need to come to the next level. So the next level was 4,250, and that was a two and a half day workshop. And my conversion rates were off the charts. So low price point 47, you know, I converted at least 30% of any room into yeah. my half day workshop. And in the half day workshop, you know, they fall in love with you. They they know, like, and trust you. They clearly see your expertise. So all of these objections are naturally um, overcome. And, and then at that workshop, I would offer into 4,250. The minimum conversion I would do would be 30% of the room when I first started. Um, once I got cracking, um, I was 50% of the room was my average. And on my best day, I converted 85% of the room. That's incredible. yeah
0: incredible.
1: yeah, now these the other thing too here is that these were small rooms. I want to share that because small rooms have the intimacy factor. So you're looking at twenty five people, twenty five to thirty people in a room. and on a bad day, I was walking away with like thirty two thousand on a bad day. On my best day, uh, it was seventy five thousand for that five hours work. So you don't need to have and I've spoken in front of thousands of people too, but the bigger the room, The less of the intimacy factor and it's also when you're in a when you're in a workshop when you're in a small room um, and you've got like 25 30 people something that i did that was unique that other speakers don't do is i don't hand out the enrollment form right what i do is is during a break i'll go and speak to each person i'll let i'll let the room know i'll say hey guys what we're going to do now is we're going to take a quick break we're all going to have a little bit of a, a, a breath, and I'm going to come in and check in with you really, really quickly. How you feel about coming and spending a little bit more time with me? Now, the sooner I can check in with everyone, the sooner we can get back to the awesome content. I, for sure, I'm not silly. I've saved the best for last. So, what we're going to do is, you know, we're going to have a quick little break. I'm going to come in and check with each one of you super quick to see how you feel about coming and spending more time with me, and then we're going to come back into the awesome content and finish with the best piece yet. Then when I went and spoke to each person, if they wanted to come to the workshop, I would then go to the front of the room, get an enrollment form, and then I would come back. And I did have an assistant and I trained her um, to do the same. Now, the reason that we're doing that is because that movement back and forth creates momentum in the room and this sense of missing out so that you're tapping into these other psychological factors. So if you think about momentum in a room, if you're in a room of 1,200 people, there's a lot of people to create momentum, right? You need a lot of movement for it to be other than just, oh, they might be getting a coffee or having a bathroom break. And then the the other thing too is that when you're spending all that time, so you have that half-day workshop with people, you're giving such great content that the law of reciprocity also kicks in. They feel like they want to give something back to you. And so when you're going and talking to them, instead of them recoiling, being nervous about that conversation, they're leaning into it because they really like you. They get a sense about you, and they want to do what they can to reciprocate the gift that you have given to them. So it's really powerful.
0: Excellent. Did you think of writing a book on uh, sales and all? But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've seen a lot of things in my life, but that's it. That's one I haven't heard. Like forty-seven in, and then you're, you know, multiples. Yeah. Of of it. Like that's you a, know, and a,
1: I I became a bit of a diva too. Like it's just hilarious because when I first The very first time I sold was that because I was like speaking. I was, you know, as a journalist, you you get asked to speak all over the place. So speaking wasn't an issue for me. But the first time I had to sell from stage, um, I was a single mom at the time. And I literally had enough money in the bank for about six weeks. And so I had all this pressure on me. And so the first time I actually went to sell from stage, because which is very different to speaking from stage. And I was super nervous because I'd spoken and tried to sell and sold nothing. Everyone was just like, you're such a great speaker. You're so inspirational. But no one was yet inspired enough to open their wallets, right? And I'm like, what the? So I learned how to sell from stage, but I still had that old tape in my head going, Tanya, you've tried this before and it didn't work. And I'm like, yeah, but I actually didn't really know how to do it. Anyway, I heard all that negative chitter chat. I call it the itty bitty shitty committee right and you know like you can't do this and so five minutes into my talk I started and I came to my personal story I started to lose it I'm not talking about like a just a, you know a beautiful Hollywood like little trickle tear I'm talking about couldn't catch my breath just lost it because all the pressure of the last couple of months came down upon me my chin is quivering I can't catch my breath I'm like, this is just, this is just awful. Anyway, somehow I managed to gain composure. It was the worst talk I've ever done. In fact, a friend of mine, um, who I didn't know at the time, like he was just sitting there in the audience with his wife. A couple of years later, he said to me, we were talking about, it, and he goes, "Oh yeah, remember how much you sucked back then?" And I'm like, "Oh yeah, I do." But people obviously felt sorry for me, decided to come to the forty-seven dollar workshop. Right? They're like, "Oh, poor Tanya." We want to support her, <laughs> the poor thing. We'll just what's forty-seven bucks to cheer her on? Like we'll just come along and support her. At that forty-seven-dollar workshop, I sold twelve and a half thousand dollars. I'd never ever sold that much. And you're going back seven, eight years now. You could not wipe the grin off my face. I had been living on hundred and twenty-five dollars for my daughter and I for groceries and. Uh, 12 and a half thousand like our groceries were taken care of for the next year. I was just, I was on cloud nine. It was unbelievable. So I did that a few times and then, and then uh, um, within six months, you know, I, I was turning over six figures and with 18, I 18 months, I had a six figure income, but I was like, I would, you know, I, I, I got so I did so many of them. I could predict, right. You know, your numbers. So if I had this, if I put this many people in the room, I know this is my minimum conversion rate, so this is what I'll walk away with. And I'd look at it and I go, mm, really, like twenty eight thousand? I don't even know if I can be bothered to do that. I'm like really tired. Like, how embarrassing is that? That is such a diva. But it it, <laughs> if it did be. It was like mm, I'm really tired. Maybe I should just cancel that one. I don't know if I can be bothered for twenty eight. Like, Kenya, <laughs> <28, 000? laughs> wake up to yourself. So yeah, I became a little bit, not ever precious on stage, but behind the scenes, I kind of had these conversations because speaking is a phenomenal income stream and better yet, it's a phenomenal way to get to know people to truly make that impact. I mean, people that came in as students, you know, eight years ago are some of my dearest friends. We've jumped out of planes together uh, we've done all kinds of crazy stuff, and you know that's the power. That's the intimacy factor, right? That's that speaking of being there in the room, feeling the energy of people. It's very powerful. To so not just the money.
0: Oh, brilliant, love it. And for people that kind of aspire to be on TV, what kind of tips and tricks do oh, yeah. you give them?
1: Oh, great question. So. Are they going on TV or are they wanting to get on TV? Are you talking about, I'm getting ready to go and do my interview? Well,
0: probably both because, I mean, like, I know that years ago I was on TV for something and I just panicked and they didn't air it, so... (laughs) Yes, But no, because what I've done is i done part of uh, the manual in the Toastmasters was actually as if you were being interviewed and everything. And then I just started doing podcasts and, everything and obviously overcame my share of uh, fear of public speaking. But I know that some people, you know, they want to do it or else they panic as well. I mean, we panicked, you panic with Muhammad Ali and I, you know, panic with David. Hey. Ike, but some people yeah. panic constantly. Like, you know. Yes,
1: yes. So the first, there's a few different things that you can do but the first thing is let's look at outfit okay so um choose something that people tell you whenever you wear it everyone's like oh my god I love that on you it looks so great right so you want to choose something that you get a lot of compliments on because it means it's got a highlighter that's going to make you pop unless that color is red or orange which can be very funny with cameras and lighting and patterns can be very challenging as well. So try to stay away from like shark's tooth. I always recommend like block colors. Like if I was going on TV, I would probably, this shirt would be fine. I could put a jacket with it, but a black jacket would be probably too dark. So you need to think about that. Tailored is best when you're going on TV because TV does add weight to you. So the outfit that you want to pick always sit down in front of a mirror or get someone to take a photo of you sitting down. You want to make sure that there's no buttons pulling, you know, that you're, there's not too much of your sock showing. There's not too much of your leg showing because the viewer at home is just staring at you for maybe two or three minutes, right? They're going to, if there's something not right, it's going to irritate them and they're going to hone in on it. Like, oh my God, look at her. Look look at the shirt. Oh my God, I can't believe she's wearing it on TV. Right? <laughs> That's just a reality. But the other reality, too, is if you're uncomfortable because it pulls, you're not going to be able to be in the moment. You're going to be thinking too much about your outfit. So think about your outfit. Now, if they shoot you outdoors, as you know, quite often they do, and you're a lady, I want you to think about heels because they might want you to walk and talk and they might want you to go on grass. So don't wear stiletto heels if they're going to be interviewing you outside. Also, if you're wearing a dress, you need to think about the fact that they're going to put a sound pack down your back. So ideally, wear a shirt and a skirt. Now, I've worn a dress. I'm fine with it. You know, I I, I know what to expect. But just be aware it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable and a little bit invasive as they try to get that cord down or up your skirt and then your microphone. So a shirt and skirt can be great. So that's your outfit. In terms of hair and makeup, always get your hair freshly done. And they don't always do your makeup. A lot of times they don't actually do your makeup. They'll put a bit of shine powder on. Avoid wearing dark lipstick and dark colors, okay? Because you want to look fresh. You want to look inviting um, on, on camera. Now, so that's just your basic outfit. Here is a pro tip, okay? Now, if I was going, I'm not really wearing what I would normally wear. I always wear, and I do this on big stages, I wear an anchor piece of jewelry, right? Now, boys, you could wear an anchor piece of jewelry too. It could go into your suit jacket. Always, by the way, get your collar starched, boys, when you're going on TV or get those little things that go in the collar so it looks so you don't look limp on TV. You want to look nice and right. But yeah, it could be an anchor belt. It could be a jacket. You know, it could actually be a piece of clothing. So, what is that as an anchor? It's something that connects you to your why. It's something that's going to get rid of nerves. So I have several pieces of ankle jewelry that I can switch in and out. Um, I wear elephant earrings typically, or I have an elephant necklace. And I also have an elephant ring. And I can wear all three if I want to. If I really need my superhero cape, I can wear all three if if I didn't sleep well. If I'm feeling pretty good, but I just need something to play with to remind me about my why, I can wear my elephant ring. Now, what that does is it connects me to my why. Elephants are all about family. Um, you know, I have a daughter. I have a, I have two daughters. I have a husband. And why am I doing this? Well, I'm, I'm doing this for them and I'm doing this for other families as well. So it connects it to me. And that really helps with your nerves. So having that anchor piece of jewelry is a big one. The other thing too is if I was on TV right now, my energy would be so much higher, okay? So understanding that the camera acts as a filter And never, even though I'm just talking to you, relax right now, I'm not leaning back in my chair. I'm sitting on the top third of my chair, supporting myself. And you want to smile, okay? So you want to smile with your eyes as well as your mouth, and you want to lift your energy and listen, right? So get your outfit sorted, wear an anchor piece of jewelry, sit on the top third of the chair and listen. And if you don't understand a question, ask for it to be repeated. Now, here's how you don't freak out. Remember, when you're looking into the camera or just past it, they'll often have you look at a, an eyeline just to the side of the camera. You are speaking to mum and dad at home. The interviewer is, yes, asking some questions, but the information you are giving is to the mum and dad at home. So when you're looking in the camera, you're looking at the interviewer, you're answering the question, I want you to imagine who it is that you are speaking to. And the cool thing about this is if, If say you were, uh, say we were talking about a conspiracy theory, right? So we were talking about vaccines or we were talking about something global warming, right? Some people believe it, some people don't. The journalists should be impartial, but they may have been given a series of questions from their boss. It's happened to me. I've had an editor hand down questions that I really didn't want to ask, but I was new to journalism. So I did what I was told. After about 15 years in and I tell my editor where to go and he should go get another journalist and they can ask the questions. But, but basically, a journalist—you know some journalists are going to be given questions they might feel uncomfortable asking. And they might want controversy. They might want you to get fired up and argumentative. Now, if you do that, you risk alienating mum and dad at home. So no matter whatever comes at you, just stay calm and remember your job is to win over mum and dad at home. Because when a journalist keeps going at you, it's at the beginning, the audience at home is like, yeah, get them, this is going to be great, right? But if you don't, if you're not triggered by it and you don't buy into it and the journalist keeps bullying you, it's funny how we have that conversation, then what happens is it flips and it goes to mum and dad at home going, yeah, get them to, what is this journalist's problem? Leave them alone. So now you flip the audience they're now on your side and you know more likely to google your name and do all that really great stuff so just remember you're speaking to one person and visualize that person at home so sometimes I might think about my daughter like that, that really is a why for me you know I'm, I'm talking to Olivia uh, so if someone asks me a question about it I'm thinking about her when I'm answering that question to her and that helps me stay personable relatable down to earth and stops that stops that freak out. That's a lot of info, but that will. You, keep you I love it. Attention. I love
0: it. No, no, it's excellent advice. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. And you
1: can do all of that when you're going on podcasts too. Some people, when they first start,ing they get nervous about podcasts. They get nervous about video. You know, you can wear that that anchor piece of jewelry. I, I, you know, I still, I still do it. Uh, you know, I, I, I wear something that reminds me. It's a really good habit to get into, and you find yourself looking for it. Like, oh, do I need all three pieces today? I just want to be good. <laughs> or it's like no I do I need all three where can I buy some more
0: (laughs) and like when somebody's trying to get publicity kind of PR and stuff like that to get on whether it's Forbes get on BBC or whatever any tips there how they can go about it
1: yeah I mean I'm sure people familiar with your audience is familiar with Stephen Covey so you've got to start with the end in mind right so where is it you want to be featured or where is the story that you have? Where is the match? Because the journalists and editors and producers and senior producers, they're a gateway for the audience, right? So they need to make sure that the content that you have is relevant for their audience. And so where a lot of people go wrong is they're like, oh, I want to be um, on the Today Show and I want to talk about suicide. Well, um, you can on National Suicide Day, but the rest of the year, Suicide and depression is a really hard sell for a breakfast TV show because they want to entertain and uplift their audience at the start of the day, right? So you need to think about reverse engineer it. This is my story. Therefore, I can go to these outlets or these are the outlets I want to be featured in because I want that logo on my website. What do I have? That I could possibly pitch to them so have a look at the outlet have a look at the content that they are sharing and make sure that yours is going to be relevant to their to that audience so that would be step number one step number two would be journalists have so many news pitches coming in you know like every second they're getting bombarded with pitches and press releases and 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 all that good stuff So you want to, if you can, make your story timely and relevant, because if a story doesn't have a sense of urgency or an expiration date, the journalist will just save it for a quiet day. I used to do this when I would have to work on Sundays. The last thing I wanted to do was come in and have my boss tell me what stories I was going to do. So I would save my stories for a rainy day and offer them up on a Sunday. Um, and I would, I would always have more stories than I could possibly do. So, if, so the lesson there is how can I make this timely and ha- put an expiration date on it? Well, maybe it's you could tie it into some kind of awareness day. Maybe there's something coming up in the news cycle. Maybe there's an election coming up. Maybe there is the UN, a meeting on something, and it's relevant to that. Maybe a celebrity has just come out and shared something, or there's a new book on something that's groundbreaking, and It's in your area of expertise. You can what we call newsjack that, meaning that if one expert comes out talking about something and you have something else to add on that topic that would be a value that would make a great follow-up story for that journalist, you can newsjack it, meaning you can add your voice to something already out there in the news cycle. And that's the best way to make it timely and relevant so you don't have that kiss of death. I'm going to save that for a rainy day.
0: Beautiful. Listen, Tanya, you've given us loads of golden nuggets today. It's been wonderful talking it's to you. It's been,
1: it's <laughs> been fine. Thank you so much.
0: So how can people get in contact with you?
1: Uh, well, you can contact me on social media, uh, Tanya Target on social media. Uh, I'm on Instagram, Tanya Target Camacho, uh, also on LinkedIn. Love for you to come and connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, and also if you feel like coming and hanging out with me a little bit more i do actually have i do run pop up masterminds which are totally free but you do yeah, but
0: the to- but the follow up is 10 million probably <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, I have these pop-up masterminds. I started them um, in January, in the first week of January, and they've been wildly successful. We've been doing all kinds of fun stuff in them. So if you'd love to come and spend a little bit more time with me, love to um, get a hot seat in the pop-up mastermind, um, I'll share the link with you. Would you like me to read the link? Because we did talk about this.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm obviously going to include it in the description, but sometimes it's good to actually say it because people are listening. and
1: Right. And well, it's a bit.ly link. So it's bit bit.ly forward slash pop hyphen up hyphen mm is in mastermind. So that's bit.ly, uh, bit.ly forward slash pop hyphen up hyphen. Um, MM for masterminds, that's the shortest uh, URL. And you can uh, apply for one of those, um, it's totally free. They go for a couple of hours, tremendous value. We've we've had some amazing um, success come out of those pop-up masterminds from speakers, um, getting signature talk titles, going and get booked at exclusive events, um, all kinds of really crazy stuff. So I do invite you, if you wanna come and hang out with me, show me in that application why I must pick you. And I look forward to hanging out with you. And thank you so much for the time, it's been fun.
0: No, oh, I mean, with all the tips and tricks, I think a lot of people will be uh, trying to get in on that because uh, I know that I would like to to be part of that. It. It's, uh, yeah, you've given some really beautiful information today. So thank you very much.
1: Oh, my total pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
0: So that's all for the speaking podcast. You'll find all our episodes on speakingpodcast.com. or on BitChute, we on YouTube. Sure to give us a thumbs up, five star rating, share with your friends. Until next week, take care. This podcast is sponsored by Kula creators of websites, animation, and digital art. To get a 10% discount, go to coolaboola.com and put in the discount code SPEAKING.